Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. This time, we are with Martin Walker, a noted journalist and author. He spent about 28 years with The Guardian in various reporting and editing capacities and was the U.S. Bureau Chief. He also, for many years, appeared as a regular on the Friday News Roundup for Diane Rehm on NPR. In addition, he's an accomplished author of fictional mysteries. We caught up with Martin while on a book tour in Phoenix to talk about Brexit. Tell us about writing mystery novels and and, and your book tour that you're on. Um, well, I, it, it's really all came about by accident, because while I was a journalist and based in Soviet Union and, and in Washington for a British paper, The Guardian, um, I, I wrote the usual kind of traditional journalistic books, you know, rather worthy, a bit ponderous, for international relations, foreign policy, a bit of history, history of the Cold War, books about Gorbachev, and so on. And um, it was all very worthy. And then um, we find ourselves in, um, in in Europe, in Brussels, where I'm the Europe editor. And my wife says, listen, you know, our daughters are growing up with no roots. They're children of foreign correspondents. We need some place that will give them real, real permanence. And um, so she persuaded me to get this place in the Perigord. And uh, I just felt liberated. I was sort of, hello, flowers, hello, trees. <laughs> I want to write something different. And um, I wrote my first novel, which was... I was fascinated by the caves, the prehistoric caves there, and particularly Lascaux, which is which is the masterpiece of, of prehistory, this wonderful tumult of life of of, 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 of of horses and of bulls and of deer all over this seventeen thousand year old cave. It is it is an extraordinary thing. And I began looking at all of the other caves and just being fascinated not just by the the wonderful food and drink of this gastronomic heartland of France, but the great wealth and history that there is there. And uh, I wrote my first novel, which was called The Caves of Perigord. And then in my local tennis club in my village, I came across this wonderful fellow, a local policeman who'd been in the French army and uh, was a great cook and a hunter, spent all of his time teaching the local school kids to play tennis or on rugby and hated to arrest anybody, and had lost the key to his handcuffs. And he became a very, very great friend, and he inspired me to write a novel about a character just like that. Well, your main character's name's Bruno, and, and uh, he's sort of the antithesis of what we would think of as a police officer in the United States, right? The reluctant law enforcement officer. Well, he's not, he's not reluctant. He just sees his job rather differently. Bear in mind that 
You know, most cops in big cities are dealing with strangers. The victims of crime will be strangers. The criminals themselves are often mysterious strangers. Um, whereas my chum, Piero, which is his real name, and, and, my, and therefore my, my cop, knows everybody in his village, in his commune, and in several of the communes around. You know, he's hunted with the fathers. He's danced at the weddings of the mothers. He's been teaching the kids to play, uh, to play rugby and tennis. He knows everybody, and this intense, detailed local knowledge of his, of, 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 of his district is what gives him the edge over the, over the, uh, the, the high-tech forensic specialists from Paris, from the police nationale, who normally sort of get things wrong, and uh, Bruno has to get put things right. Writing novels and, and mystery novels uh, like this, you said has been liberating. Do, do you think it's changed your trained journalistic eye in any way? Um, well, I still do. I still do a fair bit of journalism, but uh, um, and uh, the, the great thing, the, I mean, we, we have this saying in Fleet Street, you know, that, that uh, it's our version of, of, of this wonderful American saying of Ben Bradley's that journalism is the first rough draft of history, right. which is you know, wonderful and noble and portentous. In Fleet Street, we say, don't get it right, get it written. There's a hole in the paper tomorrow. That is to say, we're never, as, as news reporters, going to get the full story. But we've got to get as much as we can, as fast as we can. And, uh, I mean, I think that's an essential difference between, uh, between the U.S. And, and British journalism. We, we Brits tend to think of ourselves as inky-fingered hacks, whereas an awful lot of American journalists tend to take themselves rather seriously. Um, first rough draft of history and all that. So uh, I, I think you know, we, we, we're much more, I think in the UK, we tend to be rather more, uh, rather more open about the, the political tendencies of, of our newspapers. And that's true of, of uh, German and, and French papers as well. But I think that there's a general sort of approach to, um, to life in, uh, in, in Europe, which is, which is probably rather more cynical of the approach to life in the US. I, I've always been struck by how, how deeply idealist Americans really are about the way their politics works, about the, the way their legal system works, whereas we sort of tired old Europeans tend to view that, as Immanuel Kant put it, from this crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. <laughs> so, and I'm very conscious of that when I'm writing my novels. Lots of crooked timber of humanity. Well, while you've been here and promoting uh, your your latest book, uh, all hell's broken loose in, in the United Kingdom. Well, we've we've had a little local difficulty called a referendum. Yes, <laughs> um, we've had uh, we've voted quite narrowly, fifty one point nine percent of us uh, to leave the uh, European Union. And 48.1% of, of us wanted to stay in the European Union. And this you know, has been greeted by the, the world's financial markets with great sort of thunder and, and drama. In fact, you know, it's not nearly as, it's not really as exciting as all of that. First of all, this referendum is not necessarily binding. When we had the uh, Scottish referendum um, on Scottish independence, Parliament passed an act saying this will be a binding referendum. They didn't do that for this one on Europe. And the, uh, the actual act 
under which you can leave the European Union, which is called Article 50, makes it quite clear that uh, that uh, Britain could only be able to leave once it's under its own constitutional procedures. The government formally says to the European partners that it wants to leave. Well, that's constitutional procedures in Britain means an act of parliament and not a referendum. So we're going to have to have an act of parliament, which will probably need, which will certainly need a new prime minister. So nothing's going to happen until September when that takes place. Uh, it might, uh, if we, he might be, have difficulty in getting a new prime minister. There might have to be an election. Even then, there is no necessary pressure upon a British government to actually invoke Article 50. So this can be dragged out for quite some time, and it's in Britain's interest to drag things out because the. Uh, so many of the Europeans are being rather, understandably, rather, well, like spurned lovers. They're feeling rather vengeful, you know, they, uh, and they want to sort of te- teach Britain a lesson. Uh, it, President Obama this week uh, on National Public Radio did an interview and, and said, you know, we should just calm down here and, and, yeah. and, and put this on a pause button because yeah. it seems like people are getting too agitated too quickly. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I mean, I think this is a moment when we really do need the old no drama Obama. Um, I think exactly. I think, his, but I think his previous intervention in all of this, when he was visiting Britain, and he said, you know, you're listen, if you guys leave uh, the European Union, if you Brits leave the European Union, you're going to go to the back of the queue for any trade deals with the USA. Well, that was that really that that really was, I think, a big mistake on his part, um, because you know the, the British tend to think that. Uh, very long, historic, and affectionate links between the UK and America. And if that's what Obama says, well, uh, so really, that's what you think of us, huh? Um, it, it, I think it, it really rebounded upon him. I think it did more harm than good. So I'm glad he's now saying, let's all cool down and, and let, let's not get into real dramas about this. There's been talk and and talk of a major petition asking for a second vote. Is yep. that something that's that's actually plausible? Um, well, it is because under British law, if you get a hundred thousand signatures on a petition, Parliament's got to debate it. There are now over four million signatures, um, so Parliament will certainly be taking it seriously. But I think they would be anyway. And bear in mind, this whole issue now comes down to, an, to what is the vote going to be in Parliament that, that uh, authorizes the government to invoke Article 50 and leave the EU. As we stand right now, there is no majority, neither in the House of Commons nor in the House of Lords, to pass such an act, um, which is why many people think we might have to have a, a general election first. So it really is that there is no huge urgency right now to proceed with all of this until Britain starts to get its constitutional ducks in a row. So Obama, is that President Obama is absolutely right. Let's not get our knickers in a twist. Sorry, that's an old English phrase. <laughs> let's, not get our, let's not get ourselves all uh, excited uh, too quickly because there's quite some time to play for here. Well, I, I see that uh, Secretary of State uh, Kerry is is also echoing that, saying that this could all be, I think his diplomatic term was walked back. Uh, and so the walked back from the brink, I guess. 
Well, I, you, it, I mean, it, it, it's interesting you put it that way because it, it's also, it's not just a question of walking backwards or forwards. It's also a question now, I'm afraid, for the Europeans and perhaps for the Brits as well of saving a certain amount of face. It's going to be very difficult for any British politician to say to the British people, you may have voted for the referendum, may have voted to leave the EU in the referendum, but um, we've thought about this and it's not a good idea, so forget about your vote. That's a very, very hard argument to make to a, to a democratic country. And on the other hand, it's, it's very hard to say to the Europeans, all right, look, we entirely understand you're feeling like spurned lovers. You know, the Brits have decided they want to walk out on you. Well, this is not a time to call the divorce lawyers and screw every last penny out of this, uh, out of this dreadful betraying spouse. Uh, no, no, it's time for the Europeans to think, well... Actually, maybe the Brits do have a point or so about the need for certain kinds of reform in Europe, and wouldn't it be in everybody's interest to, uh, to try and move down that path? So I think if we can gain time for cooler heads, and that's the kind of impression we're getting from Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, then uh, maybe this can be, if not walked back, perhaps tiptoed back with a lot of face-saving for everybody. We see that there is now uh, some movement, some of the leaders uh, of the uh, withdrawal movement uh, now saying they don't want to be prime minister. Uh, it's, there seems to be a, a whole lot of internal turmoil politically. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the reason for this, in part, is that it's all so terribly incestuous. The, the prime minister who is now gone, David Cameron, was not just at college with Boris Johnson, the, the leader of the Brexit party, who was a former mayor of London, um, and also with B Boris's, uh, Boris's sidekick, Michael Gove. They were all at university together. Indeed, Boris was at my own old college, Balliol. But before that, at Britain's most exclusive private school, Eton, uh, Boris and David Cameron were at the school together. And Boris was head of school. He was head boy. He was, what's more, president of POP, which is one of these silly English titles, which meant that um, he was allowed, he was the only boy in school allowed to wear a colored waistcoat to show what wonderfully high status he had. And at that time, he was two years older than, than young David Cameron. And for him, David Cameron was Cameron Minor. And Boris has never got over the fact that there was he, the hero of his school, um, having to put up with Cameron Minor, this junior sprog, becoming <laughs> prime minister instead of him. There is a huge amount of sort of personal, uh, personal psychodrama taking place here. And uh, then again, now that Boris has said, well, OK, I won't uh, stand for being the prime minister, he's, he's done that because his sidekick, Michael Gove, slipped the stiletto between his ribs and announced he wouldn't support Boris after all. And he took away the 40-odd members of Parliament who uh, were on his side, and he's now standing for the Prime Minister. It is, it is like a battle in a schoolyard. Yeah, it's, it seems to be, and it seems to be changing uh, almost by the minute. <laughs> it, it, I thought maybe the dust would settle after a week, but the drama seems to be ratcheting up. <laughs> No, no, no. We're, 
I mean, we're, 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 I mean, some of us are really, uh, it, I mean, I'm torn between you know, rolling on my back and holding my stomach and laughing until I'm fit to burst and, and sort of shaking my head in despair about the, the extraordinarily childish shenanigans of my, of, of, of my, of my countrymen. Um, but it's, uh, it's something, it's, it is quite serious. We're going to have to deal with it seriously. But I think we're going to need some time to do so. And it's not just the Conservative Party that's fallen into this, into this, uh, into this self-lacerating frenzy. It's also the, the, the dear old Labour Party, where Jeremy Corbyn, just a year after being triumphantly elected, or less than a year, after triumphantly being elected triumphantly uh, as the the party's new leader and having brought in hundreds of thousands of new radical young people into the party, um, he's now been disavowed by the bulk of his fellow Labour members of Parliament. There's going to be a leadership, um, going to be a leadership crisis and a leadership election in the inside the Labour Party. I mean, it's it's like you know, it, it's like a fado farce where everybody is rushing in and out of all the doors at the same time. We'll be back after this short message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations students before profits award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. One of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. Let me ask you, with the vote as it stands, what role, if any, would industry that's located in the UK or, or banking, a large banking contingent that's located in London, uh, do they have any influence on the politics of this and say, you know, we're going to pull out, uh, we're going to go to the continent? Well, um, I, think the, I think now they will have, they could have a great deal of influence because everybody's had a bucket of cold water poured over them. We heard so many dire prognostications during the campaign from the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Bank of England, the OECD, from every reputable economic institution in Britain and in Europe, all of them saying, look, if you vote to leave, it's going to be pretty nightmarish. It's going to be a real, a real economic, uh, economic problem, and it could spill over into a global recession. So please, please... Think of this very, very seriously. The pound would collapse. Uh, banks and big corporations would want to leave Britain. And the, the response 
from the uh, from the the Brexit camp was, oh well, they would say that, wouldn't they? And indeed, one of their leaders, Michael Gove, who's the the man who stuck the stiletto between Boris's ribs, right. he actually said, "We've heard more than enough from these experts." I mean, it's it's rather like this. Somebody once said that that Donald Trump represents the post-truth era in American politics, and this is exactly what happened in Britain. We had this post post-truth era. People simply would not believe what the experts were saying about the implications of Brexit. Well, they know better now. They've realized just how, just how serious the global markets uh, are taking this decision and just how grim the consequences could be for the British economy. If my looking at the statistics is, is accurate, Martin, it, it looks like only three areas voted to, to stay with the EU— uh, London uh, itself, but also Northern Ireland and and Scotland. Uh, yes. What political ramifications uh, could there be with, especially Northern Ireland and Scotland here? Well, it, it means if we go ahead with leading the EU, it's the end of the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom, let's not forget, has been you know has been in business for several centuries now, at least right. three centuries. Um, and it means that Scotland, and I'm, I'm originally, I'm of Scottish origin, uh, it means Scotland would, I think, certainly uh, vote for independence to leave, uh, to leave the United Kingdom and to remain in the European Union. Um, and I think that the real problem about Ireland is that it would, it would simply put a bomb under the peace settlement that finally brought a kind of a truce to Northern Ireland about 10 years ago. Uh, after 30 years of the Troubles, there would certainly be an attempt by the Catholics and many of the centrists in Northern Ireland to finally bring about union with Southern Ireland, with ERA, so that they could all stay in the European Union. If that were to happen, then I think there's an awful lot of Protestant hardliners who would start the kind of guerrilla operations that the Catholic IRA hardliners were doing 20, 30 years ago. Um, and the alternative is that if Northern Ireland stays as part of the United Kingdom, then we're going to have customs posts and uh, a hard border between Europe and Northern Ireland, just as we might have to have a hard border with customs posts and passport checks between Scotland and England. I mean, yeah, it's a disastrous outcome. So you were uh, the uh, U.S. bureau chief for The Guardian for, for a number of years, and, and you know American politics. You, you talked about the post-truth era, uh, perhaps that Donald Trump is in the post-truth era, and that was replicated uh, in last week's vote. What, what lessons should American uh, politics take from this vote, if any? Well, uh, I, I think, first of all, to realize that, that when you go out to vote, it's pretty serious stuff. I mean, you can really be charting the course for your country and indeed for much of the rest of the world for some years to come. So it really deserves to be taken very, very seriously and that it's not just a, an opportunity to cast a protest against what you perceive as the uh, venality of the various candidates or, or their incompetence, it really is worth taking very, very seriously as your civic democratic responsibility. The second thing is, is uh, please, please sort of 
uh, please submit what the candidates are saying to the test of your of your most severe skepticism. Analyze what they're saying. Think about what they're saying. Does it sound real? Does it sound likely? You will certainly find different experts saying different things, but use your own judgment. I mean, I think the common sense of, of ordinary people is, on the whole, you know, pretty reliable. Um, but it's when you get so many votes that are simply about one issue, whether it be abortion rights, whether it be migration, whether it be race, whether it be, uh, whether it be uh, Middle Eastern policy, uh, I think that generally can be a mistake. You know, one of the reasons why Margaret Thatcher condemned the idea of referendums was that she said they have always been a vehicle for demagoguery and populism. And uh, that on the whole, a democracy deserves something better than that. And usually, democracies tend to get it from their, uh, from their voters. And I hope that very much that uh, the, uh, the American voters this year will will uh, rise to their responsibilities rather better than we did in Britain. Last question. That is, as Americans, and we tend to only look at at Europe and and Great Britain uh, just uh, when something like this is going on, but uh, what should we be looking for? What should we be looking for as the next move? What should pique our interest? Okay, I mean, there are three things I think that are worth, worth keeping a close eye on for the U.S. The first one is um, who is going to emerge as the leader of the Conservative Party. Currently, I would suggest it's probably going to be Theresa May, who is um, um, a fairly centrist figure. She's currently the uh, our equivalent of the, of the Attorney General um, and is... Um, and is, is, is pretty well respected. She was, you know, in the middle. She was in favor of the remaining, but with her, her own critique about, you know, about, about Europe. The second thing to, to watch is the dynamics between Germany and France, which are now the, the two countries that really matter inside the European Union. The French, because of political reasons for an enfeebled President Hollande, want to punish Britain for this and want to make it very clear that Britain is going to be made to suffer so much it will act as a deterrent to any other country that wants to leave the European Union. Angela Merkel of Germany, on their hand, is saying, listen, let's, uh, let's get some, have some time here to let the dust settle. Let's not do anything hasty. So that dynamic is going to be absolutely crucial. And I think the, the third thing to keep an eye on is to, is to ask, is to watch carefully whether the tumult that we have seen in the markets is just an immediate short-term reaction or whether there's going to be a long-term effect, uh, this a long-term effect at a time when you know, the Chinese economy is slowing hard and the debt crisis is still rolling on through uh, many of the emergent markets and both Italy and France and other European countries are getting into very debt problems. So keep an eye on the, the real impact economically of this particular Brexit vote. We really appreciate you talking with us, Martin. What, what's the title of your latest book that you're touring the U.S. to promote? Oh, it's called Fatal Pursuit, and uh, it's about the, uh, the hunt for, uh, 
a long-lost car, the most valuable car in the world, a 1936 Bugatti Atlantic Type 57C, which only four were ever made by Mr. Bugatti. One of them was recently bought by the California Auto Museum, and they paid $37 million for it. And one of these four actually disappeared in the middle of World War II in the region where my hero is based. And it's really all about, is this car about to turn up again or what? Well, best of luck with your book and best of luck with your book sales and and your future writing. and, And thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Thomas. Great pleasure. We've been talking with journalist Martin Walker about the ramifications of Brexit. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Coming up next on Spectrum is a conversation about journalism, race, and politics with journalist Gwen Eiffel from PBS. For more information about Spectrum, go to woub.org.